Great. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, hello to those of you on the live stream. Thank you to Calvin and the band for leading us uh, in our worship and for reading so beautifully. Well, I'm sure it hasn't escaped your attention that we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Energy bills soaring, families struggling to put food on their tables in some cases, strikes and threats of strikes, and more. And here we have two whole chapters on charitable giving. (laughs) So how are we feeling about that, I wonder? (laughs) The timing of these things, eh? If you are new to the church, or if you're visiting, or nearly new, I need to say that we don't actually say a lot about money here, um, generally speaking, and I think not saying a lot about money suits us all, because like sex, we feel uncomfortable talking about it. It feels kind of tacky to talk about money. According to some research in 2020 by the Money and Pension Service, we avoid talking about money because of shame, embarrassment, not wanting to burden others, and because we feel like it was not how we were brought up. And yet, even though we don't like talking about it, it's often on our minds, isn't it? It's the epitaph on the tombstone of a Scottish cemetery. Here lies Hamish MacTavish, whose deeply sorrowing widow continues to carry on his flourishing greengrocery business <laughs> at 11 High Street, open daily until 8. <laughs> money, 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 often on our minds, but not so often in our conversations. But one of the reasons we work through a book of the Bible, like 2 Corinthians, section by section, is that we can't just skip over the bits that um, we would rather avoid. So let's get down to it. You'll benefit from having your Bibles open before you, so uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or if you're using the church Bible, and if you're using the church Bible, page 1162. And let's start by looking at the Macedonian churches. So Paul writes in the first verse, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Well, the churches he are referring to are those in the top left-hand corner of that postcard, the churches in Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi, part of modern-day Greece. I just see joy on Ian's face when that map appeared. It just brings a... If you want to bring joy to Ian, take him a map. Just... Paul spent time in those three places uh, as documented in Acts chapter 16 and 17, if you want to read about that. And Paul tells the Corinthians that God has given these churches grace. But the grace, the form of this grace, takes us by surprise. Verse 2, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. So the generosity of the churches in Macedonia, the churches in Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi, was evidence that God was at work in them. Now let's notice the following things about this generosity of these Macedonian Christians. 
And first, let's just notice how surprising it is. It's a generosity that grew out of the most extraordinary context. Paul says that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Like an exquisite flower surrounded by desert rocks and sand, their generosity appeared incongruous given the troubles that they were enduring. And yet it's a generosity that's fueled by this compound of abundant joy and deep poverty. So if you look beneath the surface of the desert floor, you'd find that joy and those dire financial circumstances together thrusting this plant of generosity upwards. Who would have guessed? Who would have guessed that out of those circumstances such generosity would come? It was surprising. And it was rich, verse 2. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, verse 3. Now, we might well have called it rash or reckless or impulsive or irresponsible. But, of course, it's entirely in keeping with other examples that we have in the Bible. In Mark 12, for example, the widow who said to Jesus, of whom Jesus said, out of her poverty, put in everything to the temple treasury, all she had to live on. And it's in keeping with the woman in Mark 14 who broke her alabaster jar of very expensive perfume that could have been sold for more than a year's wages and given to the poor instead to pour on Jesus' head. The retired Anglican Bishop Michael Bourne once wrote, the heart does not sit down to calculate. It was a rich generosity. Thirdly, it was a proactive generosity. The Macedonians urgently pleaded for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, verse 4. One writer notes that far from any pressure being brought upon them to give, they were the ones who put pressure on Paul to receive their gift. Now, we're all familiar, I'm sure, with uh, the young child desperate to have something, please, please, me, me. But here in Macedonia were Christians who were desperate to give something. Please, please, us, us. And then fourthly, it was a prioritised generosity in the sense that Paul describes it. Verse 5, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Because it's possible, of course, to be generous for the wrong motives or to misplace our generosity or to use our generosity as a cover-up for something else. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing, are the familiar words from 1 Corinthians 13. But that wasn't the case with the Macedonians. They'd got things in the right order. First came the Lord, and then everything else followed. So when I think about these Macedonian churches, these Christians and their generosity, it just occurs to me that it's unnatural. It's unnatural. Some people would say it was bizarre. 
But that shouldn't really surprise us because their generosity is the outworking of God's grace in their lives. And it's no coincidence that the word money actually doesn't appear at all in this chapter. But grace does on four occasions. We've seen the first in verse 1. Here's another in verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So if the generosity of the Macedonian churches was extraordinary, how much more extraordinary was the generosity of Jesus Christ himself, who, as we sang, abandoned the glory and perfection of heaven to immerse himself in the dirt and imperfection of our planet so that through his sacrifice we might have life. So we've got two remarkable examples of generosity, that of the Macedonians and that of Jesus. Why does Paul present them to the Corinthians? Well, not just because he wants them to be generous, but because the clock is ticking and the time for their generosity is running out. So let me explain. So a few years before writing 2 Corinthians, Paul had written, no surprise here maybe, 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he says this, the first four verses. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this is the context. The church in Jerusalem was in dire financial straits. And Paul had encouraged the Christians in Corinth to provide financial support for them. And the Christians in Corinth had responded enthusiastically to the suggestion. Our passage tells us in verse uh, 10, last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. They really responded to Paul's appeal. And this in itself was quite something, because the Corinthians were, by and large, Gentiles, non-Jews. And in the early days of Christianity, there was a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles. It was quite something that Gentile churches in Corinth were up for helping Jews in Jerusalem, particularly as there was no way of knowing how their financial gift would be received. When Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, he had to ask them to pray that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received. Because there was some doubt in his mind how it was going to go down. He didn't know if those proud Jews would turn their noses up at Gentile charity. And now it's crunch time for the Corinthians, because Paul is going to send a small group of trusted Christians to collect the money that the Corinthians have hopefully been putting it to one side and then take it onwards to Jerusalem. 
And Paul has been telling these believers in Macedonia how generous these Christians in Corinth are. So if this traveling band of companions turns up to Corinth and there's no money to take to Jerusalem, well, it's going to look bad on Paul and it's going to look bad on the Corinthians too. There's a saying that people with good intentions make promises, but people with good character keep them. And Paul wants the Corinthians to be people with good character. He wants them to follow through on what they said they would originally do. Verse 11, chapter 8 still. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So Paul's saying, I want to see those good intentions translated into good actions. But time has passed, so maybe the Corinthians aren't quite so keen to open their wallets and purses as they were at first. So how is Paul going to stir them to action? Well, in addition to the inspiring example that he's put forward of the Macedonian churches and of Jesus himself, Paul sets out a number of principles in chapters 8 and 9, which, if accepted and believed, will move them and us from generous thoughts to generous actions. And here they are. First of all, principle number one, it's about willingness to give. 8 verse 12, chapter 8 verse 12, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And later, Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the Greek word hilaros, translated cheerful, is the source of our word hilarious. And churches have had a lot of fun with that fact over the years. But actually, it wasn't until the 1920s that hilarious carried the idea of very amusing. Instead, it just meant not grudging, but willing. So to illustrate, when King David, back in the Old Testament, asked for materials to build the first temple, we are told that Israel's leaders gave willingly. I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you, David says in his response. David loved a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful, willing giver. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that God loves a cheerful giver. So that's principle number one. From the same verse, chapter 8, verse 12, we see this other second principle that Paul puts forward to encourage the Corinthians to action. It's the principle of proportion. Value is not determined by amount. It's not about how much you give. So it may be tempting to think that my, my contribution is not going to make a difference. It's tempting to think that because I don't have the finances of Elon Musk or James Dyson or whoever, because I don't have large sums at my disposal, my small contribution is just going to be a drop in the ocean. It's not going to make any difference. Paul says, don't think like that. The value of your gift is based on what you have, not on what you don't have. Or maybe, less likely perhaps, it's tempting to think that my contribution is going to be so appreciated that God will be so impressed because I give so much more than everyone else. And again, Paul says, don't think like that. 
It's not about how much you give. It's how that relates to what you have. Proportion. Third principle that Paul puts forward to encourage the Corinthians to take action is this principle of equality. Now, the Conservative government has a levelling up programme, a, quote, moral, social and economic programme to spread opportunity more equally across the UK. I'm not making a political point here, but we might say that Paul's concern is more with levelling down, where those who have much share what they have with those who have little. Verses 13 and 14 again, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, he writes. Principle number three. Fourthly, it's about reaping and sowing. Into chapter 9 now, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. So there's a spiritual law, Paul says, just as real and just as reliable as a natural law. If you sow a lot of seed, you'll get a big harvest. But if you only sow a little seed, you'll get a small harvest. And Paul says it's the same in the spiritual realm just as it is in the natural realm. And of course, he's not talking about financial return. That should be obvious to us from everything he's, everything he's said so far in this chapter. But he's talking about a spiritual harvest. As the old quote goes, God is no person's debtor. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they're not going to lose out if they are generous. Fifth principle, it's about trusting God to provide for our needs. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 9. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest in your, of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. If I give, I'm not going to have enough for myself, is how we might reason. But Paul says, no, it's not like that at all. Paul says that if you give, you'll actually have even more opportunity for generosity. As it says in Proverbs 11, 24, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And then finally, final principle, it's about thanksgiving. Chapter 9, verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And verse 13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Because you give, Paul says, others will worship. Because you give, others will pray. Because you give, others will praise. Others will, get, others will credit God for the fruit of the good news 
in your life. So let's quickly recap, because I know there's quite a lot of points I've covered there. Pretty, I've gone over, skipped over them quite quickly. Paul says, first of all, look at the Macedonians. Look at Jesus. There are some ex- inspiring ex- examples of generosity for you to consider. And he says, you are a generous people, Corinthians. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. And here are some principles to guide you. It's not about how much you have. It's about how willing you are. It's not about how much you give. It's what giving means in terms of what you have. It's about equality. Give generously. You'll reap generously. God will give you everything you need. Praise will ring out to God for your response to other people's needs. So we've got these inspiring examples of Jesus and the Macedonians. We've got some inspiring principles to follow. So how should we respond? Time to act, says Paul to the Corinthians. Time to put these things into some kind of action. What about us? It's pretty clear what the Corinthians should do. That had already been arranged in the past. For them, it's a case of following through. What about us? If you go on a holiday to Palestine, and if my clicker works, there we go. You may come across two seas, both fed by the same river, the River Jordan. If you go alongside one of those seas, you may find children playing by the banks, trees, leisure industry, all sorts of things happening. But go in another direction, near the other sea, and you'll see no sign of life whatsoever at all. Nothing, just barrenness. Both seas are fed by the same river, the River Jordan. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that into one sea, the water goes in, and the water goes out again, and into the other sea, the water goes in, and there it stops. That sea, as you're probably aware, is known as the Dead Sea. Now, it's not my role as a privileged, affluent Westerner to suggest how you should respond to this message. I can't possibly know your circumstances, and even if I did, it would be inappropriate for me to suggest what your response should be to what we find in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians. But like Paul, I want to remind you of the grace given to the Macedonian believers and how that was reflected in their surprising, rich, proactive, and prioritized generosity. I want to do that. Like Paul, I want to remind you of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I want to do that. If you feel prompted towards action, prompted to respond to God's grace in your life, then like Paul, I want to encourage you to remember some guiding principles of willingness, proportion, equality, harvest, provision, and thanksgiving. And finally, I want to leave you with this image. Because we are all recipients of God's grace. 
if grace doesn't find an outlet, ultimately the result is death. But if grace does find an outlet, when grace finds a home in someone's heart and then finds a way out again, in expressing itself in love, then that's when there is life. Amen.